Another episode of Behind the Lens. I am film critic Debbie Elias, creator and host of Behind the Lens. You can find my movie reviews and interviews in the U.S. and abroad, in print and online, 24-7. But every Monday, you're going to find me right here on AdrenalineRadio.com, going behind the lens and below the line with filmmakers, writers, directors, composers, costumers in film, TV, as you know from last week, we even had the wonderful Ben Rausch joining us with uh, his singer-songwriter, with his uh, The Emoji song, which if you haven't heard it, I can't advise you highly enough. Please, find it on YouTube, listen to it. It is so much fun, and it'll put you in a really good summer mood at this almost, you know, a month into the official summer time. But we have a very eclectic kind of show for you today. And there's some sci-fi and a twisty little heist drama that we're going to talk about. Um, I'm very excited. We're going to have writer-director Julian Fort with us live at the half-hour mark talking about his film, his first feature film, mind you, The Midnighters. It is a fabulous little crime drama. Uh, as I said, it has a twist. It has a couple little twists in its styling, in its pacing and editing, courtesy of editor Jim Ewing. Uh, and an incredible performance from a beloved uh, character actor, Leon uh, Russom. Leon, many of you going back years and years and years will know his work from uh, yeah, from soap operas, All My Children, Love is a Many Splendored Thing, one-offs on TV, Spencer for Hire, Matlock, Murder, She Wrote, uh, which, by the way, I just saw the episode with uh, him as a guest star uh, last week uh, in Murder, She Wrote reruns. But uh, we're going to talk to Julian all about the creation of The Midnighters. And we're, you're going to hear my pre-recorded interview with a new star in the horizon, uh, as far as I'm concerned, Morgan Laria. Morgan, as she is an actress, she theater, TV, film, but now she does something that very few women do. She has written... A sci-fi film, co-written it uh, with her partner in crime, uh, Scott ba- uh, Scott Baker, uh, and it is a fabulous little sci-fi film uh, set in space. It's called Fifth Passenger, and there is someone from every iteration and incarnation of Star Trek franchise in this film. It is fabulous. Uh, But you're going to hear my interview with Morgan as we talk about everything about writing, you know, uh, jumping into sci-fi as a woman from a creative standpoint, uh, which is something we don't see. You know, there have been great uh, female science fiction writers over the years, most notably going back to the 1950s with Madeline Engel with uh, The Landmark, A Wrinkle in Time, uh, followed with, you know, Swiftly Tilting Planet and others. But we haven't really seen women make the jump in film 
as producers, writers, and directors. So this is new territory, groundbreaking territory. Morgan is breaking a glass ceiling here as she boldly goes where few women have gone before. So we're going to hear from her in a moment. But as promised, you know, last week we didn't have enough time because it was so jam-packed, and I did want to get in that uh, small tribute to Tab Hunter and let you hear some of uh, Tab talking about Tab and his mother in the studio system. So we didn't have time to hear anything of my interview with Edward Ballerini. Uh, You may recall from last week, that uh, Edward stars in the fabulous Seven Splinters in Life. Not playing just one, not playing two, not playing even three characters. He plays seven characters. This film is mind-blowing. It is mind-bending as we go through time travel and the splintering of a person as they they keep navigating um, the tesseracts of time, shall we say. Um, You heard a little bit of my interview with writer-director Gabriel Judith Weinshell last week. But now I want you to hear from Eduardo um, because it's not every day that that an actor gets a script that says, hey, you're playing seven parts. So, of course, that is what I had to address with him when we spoke. So take a listen um, of his thoughts on approaching these various roles how he addressed them, the importance of costume, hair, and makeup in getting into the respective characters. So, oh, and just so you know, he did not get seven separate paychecks. Um, Something that we both agreed that his agent needs to work on. But, so here you go. Take a listen to Eduardo Ballerini talking about Seven Splinters in Time. As an actor, you get a script like this, you start reading it, did you have any idea that you would that it would be a performance of seven different characters? Because I have to say, what you deliver, each one of the characters you do is distinctly different, and yet there is an emotional, an unseen emotional thread where you feel a commonality between all of them. You really do a delicate dance of performance, and you mesmerize me with it. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I'll give you a quick backstory on how this all happened. Uh, as to your question about a script, when Gabe, uh, the director, Gabriel Jude Weinshell, and I first met, he basically told me about this idea he had for a film in which a man goes to a crime scene and discovers that the victim is him. And that's all he had. And so we started kind of riffing back and forth, and Gabe and I were very much of the same kind of artistic mindset. And we... We, we bonded very quickly, and so we kind of started developing this together. And then he went off and kind of wrote the whole thing, and then lo and behold, there were seven characters, which I was not entirely expecting. I knew that there were going to be two, uh, and then possibly a third, but then it just kept going and going, and it was just such a delicious opportunity as an actor. How often does that happen? I mean, I, I'm going to say never. Um, And then we, you know, had the the big task of trying to create and develop these characters. And obviously there's the central character of Darius who takes up most of the the screen time. Uh, And then as far as the others go, I wanted to keep something common among them. But I also wanted to kind of have a sort of jazz improvisational style to it, which is very much in line with the film. 
And so we would kind of make up the other ones on the fly. We would talk about them the day of, or maybe a few days before, and then we would just kind of riff. And it was a wonderful way to develop these characters. And I'm forever grateful that this opportunity came my way. As each one appears on screen, I was like, I was gobsmacked. We get Mr. Bowtie, the prim professional, and an English accent. And then we have hair slicked back, kind of a mobster look, but all in white. I mean, just one after another. The hardest thing was those scenes where I had to, you know, play opposite myself. Um, that was a distinct challenge, I have to say, um, because I kind of had to memorize my own rhythm of the lines in order to then do the other half of it on the other side so it would cut together uh, in, a, in, a, you know, in a coherent way. Um, but it was, as I say, it was one of the most extraordinary challenges of my professional life, and I enjoyed every second of it. So I'm curious, now that you, you mentioned that about playing opposite yourself, I know in, in other cases and in other instances, going all the way back to Parent Trap, where we've got one actor playing two different characters, and there would be a stand-in. There would be at least somebody to feed off of. Mm -hmm. Did you have that luxury, or was this strictly yeah, a in, mental in exercise? Certainly in the fight sequence, we had uh, somebody else to do the, the body part. Um, but then there were some scenes in which what I did was actually... I had an earpiece, and I'd recorded the take on one side so that I would hear the lines as I'd read them playing one character and I had this like tiny tiny earpiece that you couldn't see and I would play it back to myself and then do the other half of the scene of the other character oh, <laughs> it's pretty crazy yeah. because so much of this as you said you're riffing trying to get into the character and develop the character when did the hair and wardrobe come into play because that I found to be very significant in helping you assume these yeah. other splinters absolutely we discussed both with yeah with both departments hair and makeup and wardrobe um with the whole look of the character but as you're aware we're, we're a very low budget film so we didn't have the luxury of saying you know we just go and get whatever we want so there too there was a lot of kind of improvisational like what can we do uh you know at the last second to make this distinct but you're absolutely right that the the costume and you know an actor sometimes just steps into the clothes and feels the character and that was very much the case with a lot of these and certainly as an actor there was there was a lot of that you know we 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 worked very quickly we didn't have the luxury of a long shooting schedule uh and we certainly had to you know make our days we didn't have the luxury of pushing things or going over so we had to work quickly and so we would show up we would put things together very quickly and then we just jump in and you know, the best metaphor I can use is, and I've said it earlier, was this kind of jazz improvisational approach to it. Uh, and it's a testament also to Gabe's filmmaking style that mm -hmm. we all followed his lead, that that's very much how he works. And so we would show up on the day and he would certainly have a plan in mind. He's methodical in, in that. But he would then also trust himself to just go off on a tangent and discover something else. And so I wanted to do that as an actor as well. And trust me, when you see Seven Splinters in Time, you will just be mesmerized by Eduardo's performance. And along with Eduardo, there is the fabulous Lynn Cohen 
and Austin Pendleton, and a newcomer uh, to most film audiences, Greg Benick. So, Seven Splinters in Time, check it out, please. And now, another film that you definitely need to check out. Star Trek fans, check it out. Sci-fi fans, check it out. People that want to see just some good filmmaking, check it out, is The Fifth Fifth Passenger, written by Morgan Laria and Scott Baker. Uh, Takes place in space sometime in the future. And what is interesting is the book ending in the structure of this storytelling where we are essentially seeing Morgan's character of Lieutenant Miller is found in a somewhat comatose, shell-shocked state, non-responsive. And the first human contact that she has on being rescued uh, in this ship that, as we see, madness and mayhem has has ensued at some point, um, the first voice we hear is that of Marina Sirtis, best known as Deanna Troy, in Star Trek The Next Generation. Here she plays uh, a ship's doctor. And she, through a visor technology, starts to view Lieutenant Miller's memories to piece together what has happened, why is she in this current state. Um, and it's quite fascinating because essentially what is happening in the structure of the film is that the audience is seeing essentially what Alana is seeing through this visor technology that taps into uh, the psychological profiling and memories of a person. Uh, It's absolutely incredible as we are transported back to Lieutenant Miller's time on the ship from which he he was rescued. We meet other key players, most notably Tim Russ from the Star Trek franchise, who here plays Captain Franklin, somebody who is constantly at odds with Morgan's Lieutenant Miller. Armin Shimmerman uh, appears to be playing a doctor again uh, uh, this time. Uh, Armin is absolutely fabulous in the film. The camaraderie of everybody is amazing. Um, The story is quite interesting. There are some twists and turns here you don't expect. But the production values on Fifth Passenger are exceedingly well done. This is a low-budget film. It does not look low-budget. And there's a lot of of practical effects included in here involving um, the alien that we also encounter in the film. You can't have a sci-fi film without an alien of some sort. So take a listen to my interview with Morgan as she talks about her first time as a screenwriter, producer, starring, and she's wearing all of these hats. So take a listen. Morgan Laria talks, The Fifth Passenger. I just read the tiny little synopsis, and it's like, okay, fine, sci-fi, woman, co-writer, producer, actress, this is going to be interesting. And then within a second, I hear Marina Sirtis' voice, and I go, oh, my God. Yeah, she's amazing. And <laughs> you've already, you have validated the entire concept with one of the signature voices of Star Trek. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, we got really lucky to have her involved in the process. And and at times I felt bad because her role, like she's a much better actress than her role, but I also feel like that was a testament to her acting because we didn't really give her a whole lot within that role, but she still made it really interesting. Um, 
and she was really great to work with. So. Well, and you just don't have Marina. You also bring in Tim Russ, and you've got Armin. So, I mean, you totally validate this entire film with bona fide sci-fi, recognizable sci-fi guys that every sci-fi fan out there, every Trek fan out there should gravitate towards this film. Yeah, we. I. It's so funny because um, you know we didn't we didn't set forth and really plan it that way. It just kind of happened organically. But um, I feel so fortunate that they all said yes to us and they were all in it because having them in it, as you just said, like um, it really it, it gave a lot more than I realized it was going to. Because not only are they these like amazing actors and like amazing people, but then you know their fans love them, and I think it was really exciting for their fans. To, it will be, and it has been exciting to see them within a sci-fi universe that is mm -hmm. Star Trek, and they're playing these roles that are you know Tim Russ is exceedingly different oh. than his his role Tuvok and. Um, Marina is it's kind of in the same vein, but she's different too. So they're all very different people, and so you get to see a side of them you don't normally see in their in their work. And, of course, um, and we even get to see Doug Jones here without makeup on. Yeah, I know what a treat. <laughs> yeah, um, and then you get to see like how great of an actor he is too. Because sometimes, I mean, if you just watch him, I think you can take for granted his craft and how hard it is to act and all of that makeup. Um, but then you also get to see, like, his timing is just so perfect, and, um, you know, he doesn't have very much time in the movie, but you can tell what an amazing actor he is, and, um, yeah, we were really lucky to have him, too. And it's kind of cool as well, because, you know, at the time, we shot this in 2015, and um, I, you know, I knew his work because I love Guillermo del Toro's films, mm -hmm. and, um and we were all aware of the work he's done. He's done so much, um, but he wasn't quite in Star Trek yet. And now that the movie's out, we have an actor from every single series of Star Trek except for the original series. So that's kind of fun, too. It's just kind of, you know, a little nerdy tidbit, but it's, it's neat. That has to be exciting for you, not only as an actor, because this really elevates, this will elevate your quote-unquote Q profile because of the exposure all these names are going to bring, but it's also going to elevate the entire project. And I have to say, Morgan, so well done from a producing standpoint, from Scott's direct uh, direction of it. Really beautiful polish to it. The effects, not cheesy by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, you know, and that's very key in this day and age. Yeah. So Thank you. Thank you so much for saying that. I really appreciate it. And, um, yeah, it was, I mean, we, you know, we put everything we had into it and we had, you know, we started with no money and when you have very limited money and you really have to stretch everything. And I really appreciate you saying that about the visual effects because I think, you know, we're also spoiled by these like gorgeous Marvel movies and movie watchers are just so sophisticated now. Um, and it's, it's easy to take for granted just, uh, you know, how every every different camera angle is a different shot. So that's mm -hmm. a whole other set of visual effects right there. And that, even if it's just like a two-second shot, that's technically um, another shot of visual effects and you have to pay for all that. And, and so um, we were really lucky to have the people, the new companies, to come on and do the work they did. And 
Um, we just tried to do our absolute best with what we had. So I really, I truly appreciate you saying that because I know you watch a lot of movies and <laughs> talk to a lot of people. But, so. you know, what I love is, number one, your cinematography, Iona's cinematography, is really beautifully done. And that plays hand-in-hand hand with the visual effects because if you've got crappy cinematography to start with, there's not a lot the visual effects can do other than come across as looking totally like a CGI visual effect with no DP work involved. Yeah, so, I agree. And especially some of those later scenes in the third act where your character, Miller, is crawling around in the crawl space, down, getting to the core reactor, trying to get the power back on, and then we still just see claws and little hints and fast movement of the alien. <laughs> And yeah. I mean that, and that's a, that's you know that's an extreme close-up shot that's happening there. It, it, it's so well done with the actual cinematography, with the lighting in the background, the yellowish tones. So we get the whole sickly yellow kind of oh, this is really disgusting idea, <laughs> um, <laughs> which you always yeah. get with aliens because you're waiting for something to like ooze out of them. But then it allowed for that VFX to come into play. But it's little touches like that that really stand out. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Like, we were so lucky to have Awana, and um, I I was mesmerized by her on set because she, it was almost like she couldn't really pay attention to anything except for, like, the perfect shot. Like, she was so <laughs> focused. Um, uh, like, to the point... Uh, where she, it was almost like she wasn't human because she was so involved with getting this perfect angle, this perfect shot, and to to tell the story best. And and she um, it, she often didn't care because I feel like um, you know like maybe it's not the best angle for you, but it serves the movie the best. Like her whole mentality was to serve the movie. How do I tell the story the best way I possibly can? And so I feel like she's a true artist. Like just her craft, uh, her she's very capable. Her knowledge of cinematography is incredible and actually that alien the alien you see is a practical effect mm -hmm. um, so it was great as an actress especially in, in that little scene to actually have this practical alien um, to work with and to react to uh, I mean he's, he's such a cute little alien too it is. It's adorable. <laughs> <laughs> what really stands out with this project is, number one, you're a female. You're one of the co-writers. You're starring in the film. You're producing the film. Your cinematographer is a woman. Science fiction is not traditionally believed to be helmed and conceived and constructed by women. Yeah. Um, and you, I think you, that's a bit of a shame because it's such an incredible genre. Um, and I, it was interesting because... You know, throughout this process, I've tried to educate myself more on sci-fi and watched as much sci-fi as possible. And um, and of course, growing up, I'd watched a lot of sci-fi. But there's of course, there's always more that you need to see. But then also, like reflecting on the novels that I've read that have shaped me, and realizing that a lot of well, most of those were written by men. And there is actually a lot of literature out there by women um, in the sci-fi world. Um, we're seeing that now with The Handmaid's Tale, like what an exquisite piece of work that is and how lucky we are that they're making that right now and it's speaking to so many people. But I hope that, um, you know, I, I think that with this shift and my hope is, is that it continues and that we 
get more voices, more female voices, and um, and more of this new sci-fi, because I feel like we're so affected by what we read and by what we watch and what mm-hmm. we listen to, and um, and with sci-fi, you're you know you're telling the future. It's often the future, and how many things in Star Trek. You know, how many gadgets are actually reality now? How, right. how many times have we read something and then it happens and it was sci-fi? And so I, I always wonder, like, what, what is it? Is it the writer writing or is it the writer channeling the future? Is it? But either way, I, I look forward to more diverse voices within this genre and seeing how this genre changes and shifts and, and to see what comes forward with these new voices. And there's room for them and they're needed and we should watch them and listen to them and read them. Now, what what was your writing process like? Because you co-wrote this with Scott. So I'm curious how this, did you come up with the idea? Did he come up with the idea? And then developing the actual storyline and narrowing it down into this very cohesive small Ensemble. So Scott came up with the idea. It's something that he had been thinking about for a while, and we met in a independent filmmaker group, and he knew my work and I knew his work, and so he approached me with this idea and just the premise, the basic premise of it, and I thought it was so smart because it was similar but very different. Like I had never seen anything quite like that. Um, and so we started writing out, he would write scenes and I would give him notes and then that evolved and we would meet, you know, two, three times a week and go over this. And we really did a lot of character development and that, you know, I trained classically as an actress. And so I got to bring in a lot of what I knew about character development and try to really figure out who these characters are and, and, you know, what would they do in this situation and enrich it. And then we got a lot, we got interest in the script, like, um, when we told people about it, you could just see their eyes light up. But our first draft of the script just really wasn't strong enough. And so we ended up hiring David Henry Martin to come on. And we all sat down and plotted it out together, um, saying as much as we could true to the original version, but then adding a lot of more elements. Like David Henry Martin had the idea of bringing in the character that would become Leaf, um, who was, um, it was played by David Lim. And then um, he also had the idea of having an upper and lower deck just so we'd have more to play with because Scott and I always wanted to make this, but we knew that we had no money, so we wanted to make it as contained and as simple as possible. Mm-hmm. But I think David Henry Martin was right that we just we needed more to play with and to really sell this idea and to really round out the film. So he was the one that did that. And then after we got the script back from him, it wasn't quite where we wanted it to be, so then we worked on it again and edited things and moved things around and changed stuff. Um, so that's how that worked. And, and we, you know, Scott and I worked on it basically since the end of 2011 until we started filming in 2015. So it was a bit of a process, but I, um, I'm still pretty new to the filmmaking arena. And, um, and so... I think we were naive in thinking that we could just write a script. Like, I hadn't read any script writing books at all, and it was very arrogant of me to think I could just write something, because you're like, oh, I've been watching movies all my life. But no, I think writing, the writing part is definitely the most difficult part um, and the most important part, in my opinion, because if you don't have good writing, then you're not going to have a good script. And I think... You know, going back to what you said earlier about these Star Trek actors, had the script not been what it was 
they wouldn't have been interested right. in it at all. And, you know, they, they don't have to do this work. They're fine. They can work in many projects. And um, I think it was a couple things, but one of it was definitely that they thought the script was interesting and they liked the role. Well, what I really love with your construct is really bookending it up, bookending it with the fact that Miller has been rescued. Miller is essentially a semi-comatose vegetable at the moment mm -hmm. uh, when we meet her. And Alana is the, our bookend. That, so we're seeing everything unfold as Alana is seeing everything unfold. We are watching yeah. through her eyes in the visor. And I found that really interesting. And the fact that periodically you go back, so you allow Marina, you know, she gets more input and interplay with the story uh, through the character of Alana. But I really like that because it adds another dimension to the experience. That he, And then when that third act comes, and then we start questioning and realizing exactly who Miller is, what's going on with her, then it puts a, a new spin on everything we've just seen. Yeah. And yeah. that fascinated me. Yeah, it's interesting because I really, I mean, if you look at it from that way, it's a film really about these two women creating this friendship and helping each other mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, and identifying with one another and um, having a shared experience and... Um, you know, we have some questions. We had a, a screening last December for the cast and crew, and some people asked, like, oh, why does Alana do what, what she did in the movie? And I really think it comes down to she identifies. Like, she understands, and she has empathy for Miller. Mm -hmm. um, and I know it sounds outrageous, but if you look at our news, I mean, often... Um, often similar things, you know, not identical things, but, you know, in the same vein happen in the news and people get away with it and you, um, you wonder how. And I think it, I think it's really interesting because it comes down to identifying and having empathy and this shared experience on some sort of level with one another. And of course, now as you say that, it's like, okay, well, this is the perfect role for Marina because she may not be an empath, but she's being empathetic. Yeah, exactly, so, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what, because of, you've got a lot of scene changes in here, you've got a lot of physicality in here. Were you thinking about any of this while you were writing the script as to, oh, my God, I'm going to have to be able to do X, Y, Z, oh, my God, the camera's going to have to be able to do X, Y, Z. Did any of that come into play while you were writing? But more importantly, once you actually got on set, did you and Scott have to go, uh-oh, this isn't going to work? Um, well, when we were writing it, uh, I was definitely keeping the producer's frame of mind the whole time just because I knew our budget was so limited. Mm -hmm. Um so we really try to keep it as simple as possible. And in some of those shots, they're just not. And I didn't quite know how they were going to come together. I just had always an immense sense of faith inside myself that we would somehow pull this off, mm -hmm. um, that we would make this movie and, and not really exactly knowing what that would look like. But there, I mean, there were some things in the original script that just got cut because we, we didn't have the budget, like some anti-gravity things and 
some other little visual effects shots that at the end of the day just weren't really needed, so they were cut. Um, but I really think it's a testament to Scott because he, he really sat down and, and storyboarded a lot of this stuff, and he, he had figured out how to shoot this um, in the cheapest way possible. And, and also I think it's a testament to, you know, Awana's work because she knew how to shoot it and make it sell. And also our production designer who, um, you know, there's that, you know, we call it the spacewalk, but when my character and Manu's character go from one pod to the next, there was a lot of trickery there. But then we go into the second pod and um, I thought the way that, our production designer Robert Poe really dressed it up was beautiful and it really sold the idea and um, um, so to be blunt like no I, I wasn't really quite sure exactly how but I knew that because you, you just have to put your faith in who we hired and you know I knew I had a job to do they knew they had jobs to do and I just really had to trust that it was all going to come together and luckily it did and we just planned as best we could and we all prepared as best we could because we had such a tight schedule. There just there was, you know, we had about usually about three takes to get it right and then we had to move on just because we did not have the time to do any more. Um, and so we all just prepared as best we could and luckily it worked out. Wow. Now, with this experience, what did you learn as an actor? working with these veteran actors, but also working in this, you know, essentially relatively new genre for a feature film that you can now take forward with you into future projects? Oh, so, I mean, so much. <laughs> it, was, it was basically like film school. Um, oh, so much. I, well, watching, you know, Armin and, and Tim and Marina, they're they're so professional and you can tell that those years of working on these TV shows for hours, you know, really long days, they're, they're just, their craft is just solid. Like they, they're really great technically, but then they're, they're just also great emotionally. Mm -hmm. And so I, I saw seeing like, okay, after working years and years and years, um, I don't know how much they prepared to be honest. I knew that they all knew their lines and they were all great but I didn't I never really asked them about that process but when they were on set they were just solid and you know Armin I, you know during the editing process I've worked I've worked on this and watched it for hours and hours and hours and so many times but I can I can always watch Armin Shimmerman and he always dazzles me like he's just so interesting to watch and you know when we first get introduced to Tim Russ's character and he's walking down this hallway just so badass and I love that moment um, he just comes with so much power in that moment. So I, I learned from them just with this um, this craft that they have and what that means to be on the show and, and what it means to be prepared and professional, which they all were. Um, but regarding the whole process, I you know it's such a, a big question that I wouldn't even know. I, I learned you know because I was a writer, so I learned about the craft of writing. And as a producer, I learned you know, about contracts and, um, you know, dealing with SAG and uh, dealing with vendors and, and dealing with people in that process. And then as an actor, I learned, um, I learned more technically because I've done a lot of indie projects, um, but this is definitely um, the biggest 
you know, the, the first lead role for me in a feature. Um, previously, I'd only done supporting parts. So I, I learned, you know, about stamina and just what I need to do to serve my craft and how to prepare for myself. Um, so it was, it was a lot. And once you take a look at Fifth Passenger, you're going to see that she very definitely learned a lot and accomplished a lot with this project. It is a new, totally new genre for Morgan. It is something she hasn't delved into before, nor has she delved into screenwriting and producing. So I can't encourage you highly enough. Fifth Passenger is on all the digital platforms. And right now, we're bringing on live the wonderful Julian Fort. Welcome, Julian. Hi, how are you? I am thrilled to have you on Behind the Lens today. Oh, my God. The, I'm thrilled to be here. The Midnighters. I am enthralled with this film. It, oh, fantastic. It, you know, it, for me, you know, uh, the whole heist idea, you've got a little bit of the Oceans franchise in there, especially Oceans 12, because we're dealing with a vault and a bank and, and whatnot. But also a lot of uh, what Scott Frank did with The Lookout uh, a number of years ago mm. with Joseph Gordon-Levitt. But where uh-huh. the Midnighters really, everything starts and ends and revolves around an incredible performance from Leon Russom. Uh, mm. Just, I, I have, I've admired Leon's work for decades uh, but this is the first time he has ever been given a chance to shine and take center stage. Talk to me, because I know you wrote this with him in mind. So uh-huh. talk to me about c- the concept, where this idea came from, and how you develop, and what made this the perfect vehicle for Leon to step up front and center. Yeah, yeah, I I I appreciate I appreciate you saying that. Um I I uh I have a very strange um relationship with Leon in the sense that we were we became friends long before I uh decided to try to write something for him to actually act in. And so I got to know him just as you would you know, someone who who you're not in in a working relationship with. And uh, it, it just it just it evolved organically in a way that I, I think is kind of, probably kind of rare in uh, in film. Um, he just became a, a, a fan or and a supporter of my writing, and literally off the cuff one day we were just having a conversation. We used to meet in a coffee shop in Los Angeles, and uh, which is where we became friends and. I just kind of sprung it on him after he read a, a script that I had written, and, and he responded really well to it. And I just kind of said, um, if I could write something for you, would you be interested in doing it? And if so, uh, what uh, what kind of story would, would excite you? And I swear he thought about it for less than five seconds. <laughs> and he just said, off the cuff, uh, if I... If I could play anything, I guess I'd play somebody whose kid's in trouble, and then and, and i got to help them. And I said, can I set it in the crime genre? Because that's kind of where my mind was at the time. Uh, I wasn't uh, making a lot of money, and uh, I was kind of thinking of crime myself. And I, he was like, absolutely. And I went off and, and sort of started really 
consciously trying to formulate something as quick as I could now that I had him uh, interested because I I was an enormous fan of, of him forever, just mm-hmm. like you. I mean, um, from the big Lebowski all the way through, I, I actually would go to a lot of theater in Los Angeles and I would see him perform in theater. So I just knew his scope as an actor and what he could do. Um, and, and I just sort of just tried to keep his face in mind uh, the entire time I was writing the, the, uh, the script. And it, it, I, I, I just, I'm really lucky to have had the opportunity to, to create something in that way. I mean, it's, it is so rock solid and it is perfect for Leon, because when you look back at his career, he's done a lot of police procedurals. He's done a lot of crime dramas, you know, Prison Break, Jag, West Wing, Matlock, Spencer for Hire, Murder, She Wrote, NYPD. I, so he fits in in the genre perfectly. And here, oh. you know, be it, you know, but here he gets to play an ex-con who's been in prison for, what, 45 years. And hmm. yes, 35, 35, 35. And his son has never seen him. So that right mm-hmm. there, that grabs you because we see this unfold in the news all the time. Parents that have been incarcerated oh. and suddenly they get released. And what has happened to the kids in the meantime? What has happened to the parents? It's something that we see way too often. But to see it unfold mm-hmm. here with a father who he feels that very deeply which is a testament to Leon as an actor, to convey that emotion. But also, you then cast Gregory Sims as Victor's son, Danny. And the two of them play off each other so beautifully. You really believe that with Gregory's performance, that he really, really is not happy with his dad at all, and never will be. Uh, Right. Right. Yes, I mean, I I think that that's a really common... I know how I would feel if my dad got uh, pinched when I was uh, three years old and disappeared for the rest of my life. I would feel uh, pretty, pretty terrible about him. And uh, so it was, was, you know, it's, it's funny. When you, as a writer, when you write anything, I, I... I've heard writers that are able to channel things that are completely not familiar to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, I'm always bringing in stuff from my own life. And even if it's deep subconscious stuff, I have a very good relationship with my father. But at least, you know, on the surface. But if you dig down deep enough, there's always stuff there. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though my father is, a, is an, out, an outstanding citizen and... Uh, there's just elements of relationships that uh, I'm not really sure what I'm even trying to say that I bring that I, I brought up from my depth and mm-hmm. Greg Sims is such a solid actor um, and he's actually Leon actually uh, suggested Greg wow uh, to me because um, we were having a little bit of a tough time finding somebody mm-hmm. and that that played both sort of a dangerous um, have a dangerous side to them, an unstable side, but also have this vulnerable and sort of, uh, you know, uh, extremely vulnerable side. And that was the problem. I was either getting really, really tough uh, guys or really, really, 
guys that were portraying too much weakness. Right. And I think Greg, the way the film works, and I won't spoil anything, but for the twists that happen in the film, you kind of have to walk this line and of, of being dangerous and slightly pathetic. Um, <laughs> that makes sense. Oh, that, and, that makes perfect sense. That line. Yes. Yeah. And he, thank you. And he walked that line so perfectly. Um, it was really, I was really lucky to get him. And, and uh, Greg was not supposed to be in the film. Uh, Leon recommended Greg to, to put a reading together for us mm-hmm. uh, of the script because we had never heard it. We'd never heard it in person, spoken out loud. And Greg put it together. And by the end of the reading, I was like, yeah, you're the guy. You're the guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, without giving anything away, there is that key moment in the third act where the big twist, com- a big twist comes in. Uh, and it really took me by surprise. Uh, and, and that definitely is a testament to Greg's ability as an actor, because up until that moment, you know, he was like the most ungrateful, disgusting child on the planet, um, or, or ranking close, <laughs> ranking close in there. But, you know, I've right. got, I have to ask you, Julian, because this is, it is a bank heist. Victor is the, uh-huh. you know, renowned safe cracker, but he's been behind bars for 35 years and, Technology has changed, safes have changed, bank vaults have changed, technology. Um, but you still stay with the pretty basic mechanisms of safe cracking for an old school guy like Victor. But then you also uh-huh. have to worry about your production design. The vault plays such a key element in the construct and design of the vault. And particularly since uh-huh. you were directing. So I'm curious what your considerations were when you okay we're in we're in this vault okay these are easy these are easy simple safes there's no high tech technology with these safes but then also you know building out because i don't think you had a real vault i think you had to build this set uh from what Correct. i've heard so i'm curious what because here's where your director's hat really has to kick in as well too because you've got to visualize mm-hmm. how you're going to storyboard how you're going to shot list how you're going to move the camera and shoot the scene within oh. the vault. Oh, yes, yes. Um, it was unbelievably frustrating, I have to say, because we, as I, I think, going with the times, everyone's working with much, much less resource, much fewer resources in terms of in terms of budget. We, our budget was. I, I won't say what the budget was. Never was say what the budget small. was. Never say Correct. what the budget was. <laughs> I know, I know, and I, it's like I want to scream what the budget was because I'm so impressed with the movie, but I won't because I will take your advice. I believe you're correct. Never. Um, but uh, but it was small, and um, we didn't have a lot of options. When I wrote the film originally, there were several bank vaults, uh, one in particular in Los Angeles that were actual practical bank vaults. And there was one that appeared in at least half of the heist movies you've ever seen, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was pristine and beautiful. But by the time we got to shoot the film, it had been gentrified and, and turned into a nightclub. Of course. And so, yes, of course, because <laughs> everyone wants to get drunk in a, in a bank vault. Um, and so 
we were literally up against the wall. Uh, we were about a week out of production, and we were realizing we were not going to be able to get a practical vault, and our budget did not allow for a really extensive set build. So uh, we got... But movie, the movie gods really do exist. I had heard about them before I made my first feature, but they really do exist because uh, my production designer wasn't even looking for a bank vault. She was looking for a very simple uh, prop. She was in a prop house somewhere out in Sun Valley, and she stumbled across the actual bank vault from Ocean's Eleven, the uh, the the Clooney film, and bang. She got it for a steal, and we were able, based on just a couple flaps and that beautiful vault door, we were able to construct the vault um, lickety split in a pinch, and it was un- it looked unbelievable on camera. Oh. I only wish I had more time to shoot in the vault because mm-hmm. our schedule was so tight. Well, you know, how does it feel now to have like the essence of George Clooney in your film? Oh my God! It was it, it, it was incredible. It really was, and it really that, that set piece alone. I can tell you, I can guarantee you, the build of that vault door alone rivaled probably you know our entire uh, our entire uh, pre-production budget. Wow! <laughs> Just the vault door. Oh my God! Because it's a really, really, it's a really, really. In- intricate piece of, of uh, production design. Yeah, and it, it look, and as you said, it does. It looks incredible on film. You know, and that's one of the beautiful oh, things. That's one of the beautiful things of the film as a whole. Your DP, Paul, whose work I loved in Stevie D, that he did, which is light and airy and fluffy. He did that for Chris Cordon. Mm. Uh, Chris has been on the show before, and we talked about Paul's work. Um, but yeah, you, yeah. But totally different look with your film. And that's what I really love because it shows Paul's range, but you all—he does such a great job with negative space, with the darkness mm-hmm. of negative mm-hmm. negative space. Because so much of this film is done at night or in the shadows, and it really adds to the whole ambient nature and the overall tonal bandwidth of the film. So then your editor Jim Ewing comes in and just does a dynamite job with this patient, methodical, controlled pacing that's mm-hmm. a slow burn. And it all matches mm-hmm. what Vic, what Leon brings to the character of Victor. Yeah, I, I, I thank you so much for, for, for saying that, because I, I agree with you 100%. I got so lucky with Paul and Jim. And, and once again, it was... I'd like to say I had this all constructed and strategized, but I did not. It was just, it was just luck that I, I happened to. Paul came onto the project one week before we started shooting, and that's because our first EP um, fell out just because they were, um, they were. It, we had, we had, we couldn't work together. Not because we didn't get along. It was just they weren't up to the task of shooting something the way I wanted, you know, something like you just said, methodical and um, uh, deliberate mm-hmm. and uh, very, very refined, an older, poly, like an older 70s film. Uh, and Paul would just happen to be available, and I sent him the script, and um, he loved it. And he was like, look, you know, I, I know you don't have a lot of money. I don't care. I, I, I'm not working right now. I got about two months off. 
Paul worked a lot as a gaffer, gaffed for everyone from Michael Bay to David Fincher over like a 30-year career. Mm-hmm. So he brought he brings this this sense of light to bear. Yeah. Because uh, you know in Europe, they, as, you, as you know, the gaffer is really the director of lighting, and so Paul was able to cre- like craft this unbelievable midnight world um, in a ver- for a very very low cost, which was something that I would absolutely not have been able to do without. It's he had this expertise with light uh, that that really really was there was just no way I could have got it without him and and then Jim Ewing it was his first it was his first film um, and he has such a sense for of timing and uh, you know Jim cut the movie with me we cut the film about four times through mm-hmm. um, and we really found the movie in post and Jim has such an incredible sense of, uh, of pacing it was really remarkable watching him work because he, he saved the movie several times in the edit. That's all I'll say. You know, and it's funny because I've seen some of Jim's other work, uh, you know, uh, scary movie horror theater, super scary uh, movie horror theater, a few other things, all with a comedic mm-hmm. bent to them. So to see him mm-hmm. come in to this where you have to maintain, you, not only do you have to maintain that pacing that the character of Victor brings to the film of patience, patience, mm-hmm. patience. But you've got to create a slow burn with the edit so we're being fed enough to keep us interested as to what is happening, what is happening or might be happening in the shadows of the negative space that Paul has created. Um, you, right. And that is what really... When you say that Jim saved the film, I have to say this is one of those films where editing truly is a key component to the end result. Oh, I, I am in 100% agreement with you. Not only did he have to have the patience uh, to, to cut the film uh, with what we had, because when you're shooting a really, really tight schedule, as you know, um, you, you don't get as many usable takes, and, and that's that's. Yeah for a, a plethora of reasons. But I would say we, just because of technical malfunctions and, uh, you know, shooting locations in the middle of Los Angeles in the middle of the night, um, I would say that probably only 30% of the footage we shot was usable. And so Jim was able to sift through every usable wow. frame. And keep in mind, I, I sat with him the whole time, and I'm smashing my head against the table the whole time. So he was able to calm a very frustrated director while cutting a beautiful movie. So he has he has skills that aren't even on the screen. <laughs> oh my God! Wow. <laughs> I mean, it's you know, it, it just you feel you feel what's happening, and and I have to say, there is a great scene in there where Victor slaps Danny upside his head, punches him right <laughs> in the head. And you don't see it coming because you have Victor as such a patient person. Right. But then when it comes, boy, it hits you, and it happens so quickly, and then there's a pause. (laughs) And you and Jim very keenly, so that you can sit there and go, what just happened? And uh, there are moments like that that not only stand out, 
but they inform the characters of Victor and Danny so much, as well as the Russians with whom Danny has gotten into financial trouble with. So, you know, you got to go to dad, as always, to help bail you out. It just so happens (laughs) the only way dad knows how to bail you out is to do something illegal. Um, So, but there are moments like that that are just so key, and it does, and it you sit there and it's they're they're striking and it takes you aback. Mm, thank you. Uh, you know, I really love that. You know, and almost out of time today, but we have a few minutes so that we can talk about mm. Scott Doherty's score. Sub- mm, subtle, mm. very subtle, haunting in spots. How did you, you know, what kind of notes did you give to Scott for what you wanted from an for an oral soundscape? Yeah, I, I once again another really lucky uh, acquisition by me. Just pure pure luck in that um, I knew Scott, and actually his, his team is uh, Scott and uh, uh, Gwendolyn and Brandon J. Uh, Gwendolyn Sanford, excuse me, and Brandon J. They're married, but they have separate uh, professional names. Uh, they're a they're a uh, composing team that. Um, works on a lot of television shows. They do Orange is the New Black, and they did uh, Weeds together. And I just was very lucky to, to be childhood friends with Brandon. And he suggested that, you know, um, they work on the film. And when we met up, we watched the film through, and they actually were the first people away from the um, Jim and myself to see the film. And... I was nervous showing it to them, and when they watched it, uh, they were like, this is really, really something. We have something here. Uh, and I, I was extremely relieved. They kind of saw the picture before I did. When you're, when you're working on something, you, um, you lose sight of it a little bit. And they brought me back, uh, back, back home, and they were able to really feel the movie and... I gave them very few notes on what I wanted. Um, I I, I let them go, you know, ostensibly let them go. And then, you know, I would try to rein them in if they went down the wrong track, but they went right down the the perfect track for the movie. And um, I just, I played them a lot of old scores from, um, not even a lot. I played them two school samples of uh, some Jerry Goldsmith music from some films in the Mm seventies. And they, kind of took that and sort of re-envisioned it, I think. Yeah, it really, it, it just melds with the overall tonal bandwidth so well. Um, and that, that Yeah, I think, it's fantastic. That's one of, of your great strong suits with this film, Julian, is that your visual tonal bandwidth, your performance, um, your, sat, your auditory, your score, it all melds together. Nothing is disjointed and nothing is grating against one another. It is all synergistic, and it just really, it elevates the film even more. But as I said, the heart and soul, the core of this, revolves around Leon. Yes, I, I, I agree. He's, he's remarkable in the film. He's a remarkable actor. He's a remarkable person. And uh, very few first-time directors get to make a picture uh, with with an actor like that, mm-hmm. it's, just, it's very uncommon. So it's, at the end of the day, I'm just 
an unbelievably grateful guy that I got to work with, and and that we're still friends. Because <laughs> it's, it's stressful. So, so now where thank can you so much. where can everybody see the Midnighters? We are going to be released uh, on the twenty fourth of July. It's coming out on uh, most of the VOD platforms: iTunes, Google Play. Uh, um, uh, my God! Amazon. What a terrible director salesman I am. I'm blanking on some of the some of the uh, some of the platforms. But if you do want to see it, you can go to iTunes or you can go to themidnightersmovie.com. Mm-hmm. And right when you get to the home screen, there's a link to all of the uh, all the platforms. And this is next Tuesday, the twenty fourth. That's right. I can't wait. Julian, thank you so much. I hope you'll come back on the show again. You are just an absolute joy. Oh, Debbie, I, I, I really, really, really appreciate uh, you saying that and having me here. I'd come back anytime. Oh, fabulous. Julian, thank you so much. The Midnighters on digital next week. Thank you. Thanks, Julian. Bye-bye. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. And that was Julian Fort, another first-time feature filmmaker. Um, You all know by now my great love uh, for independent film and a lot of these first-time or first- or second-time filmmakers. Uh, They deserve uh, the movie-going support, uh, filmmaking support, and it's always a joy uh, to talk to all of them. So Julian Fort, Absolutely wonderful. The Midnighters next Tuesday. Morgan Lauria, Fifth Passenger. Now, right now on every digital platform. Eduardo Ballerini and Gabriel Judith Weinshell. Seven Splinters in Time on all your digital platforms as well. So that is all the time we have today. Go check out some movies. I want to give a quick thank you to Casey Wildermont and Fran Kranz, who after last week's show got the wacky idea that we should shoot uh, just random interviews and carpets at the premiere of a Midsummer Night Stream on Friday, which we did. And it was so much fun. Guys, I love you and I thank you for that. Next week, we have Melanie Mayron and the legendary Piper Laurie. So until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 